In recent months, several European leaders have called for a slowdown in green regulation in the European Union. As the 2024 elections approach, demands for a more pragmatic green transition are growing louder, with EU leaders calling for economic and social challenges, in particular the rising cost of living and lack of food security, to be better taken into account. Meanwhile, green parties are losing ground in several member states, most recently in Luxembourg or in regional elections in Germany, while those with a conservative agenda appear to be thriving. With the fact that the green transition is no longer the in thing and politicians are subtly shifting it down their agenda, makes it no less urgent. And this situation could prompt some environmental activists to take ever more radical measures to draw the climate crisis to the attention of the media and the public. In this episode, we journey to several EU member states to talk to activists and observers. Several headline-grabbing movements have emerged in recent years. The International Extinction Rebellion, for example. To attract media attention, they use their right of expression by carrying out radical, non-violent civil disobedience. For example, by blocking roads, obstructing railway lines to stop coal trains or painting monuments. In Portugal, Greve Climatica Estudantil, or Student Strike for the Climate, takes a similar line. Spokesperson Catarina Bio tells our colleagues at Radio Renascença that the climate emergency should be tackled in the same way as the Covid crisis. We want to stop all policies that serve to expand the consumption of fossil fuels, and we also want this to be the main concern of all institutions right now. That is, putting an end to fossil fuels. Our demands simply match the constraints imposed by science. We need an end to fossil fuels by 2030, and we need 100% renewable electricity by 2025 in order to stay within the limits dictated by science. For this to happen, it must be seen as an emergency, as was the case during COVID, when fighting that emergency was the key priority of every institution. We're in an emergency now too, and we need to see it as such. So all of the institutions that aren't focusing on this problem aren't doing their job properly. Social anthropologist Klaus Elenieks explains to our colleague Richard Plume from Latvia's radio, what it is that motivates these passionate protesters. These radical demonstrations are the expression of a minority. For them, it's about the fact that we are in a situation where the issues they consider very important are not very important to most people. And so they are going to do something to force those people to pay attention, to think about it and to notice that something is going on. But when might this kind of activism cross the line? The problem is that my freedom ends when I infringe on other people's freedoms. So says Claudia Petrescu, sociologist and researcher at Bucharest Research Institute for Quality of Life, to Adelina Tucitu at Radio Romagna. The right to demonstrate and fight back against things that do not suit us is a hard-won and established right. But it all depends on how we choose to express it. If by enjoying this right we cause damage to objects of historical interest, for example, 
I'm not sure if this is the best way of expressing disagreement with some of the decisions that are being made. Yes, indeed, agrees Ivo Krustok, senior expert in climate and energy policy at the Stockholm Environmental Institute's Stalin Center. Radical activism can be accepted to some extent by society, but there is a line that should not be crossed. He is interviewed here by Mart Wallner from Kuku Radio. For me, the threshold of extremism is crossed when something irreversible or highly detrimental is done, when something irreparable is done or something that causes severe damage. For instance, when significant cultural or historical artifacts are destroyed or when human lives are put at risk. Although there are practically no examples of radical activism in Slovenia, Historian Aleksandra Berberislana shares her concerns about such damage to cultural artifacts, as she tells Vesna Dalinovic from RTV Slovenia. I think this kind of protest is completely misdirected, because these artworks have nothing to do with what they're protesting about, which is mainly targeting fossil fuels. It's true that there are also protests about galleries and museums being consecrated, although not here. In other words, about fossil fuel companies sponsoring major museums and galleries. In these cases, there is a plausible link. But my personal opinion is that this is completely the wrong way to go about it and an unacceptable way to protest. Of course, this begs the question, does such action actually bear fruit? It certainly attracts media attention, but does it really convince people to support the cause? Not according to Ivo Krustok, who asserts that while activists may make the headlines, the public's reactions to them is usually pretty negative. And Lithuanian climate psychologist Gintare Zinkevičiute seems to conquer. We can go on and on about the facts, but they don't provoke as much of a reaction as an emotional response. And here we have a lot of emotions. We have anger, we have despair, we have resistance. I've seen a number of videos of activism in action. And indeed, what has shocked me is people's very angry and aggressive response to it, which is to some extent understandable, because of the disruption of traffic, the disruption of daily activities and so on. But the purpose is to shock people, to grab people's attention. And this is what helps to draw people's attention to an extent that civic action alone does not. This is one of the reasons why climate activists are taking such measures, to shake society awake and draw attention to the fact that there is a climate crisis underway. So as to whether it achieves the goal of drawing attention, it certainly does. Whether it helps to connect people to the climate movement or just antagonizes them is another question and one that we won't get a clear answer to anytime soon. from Economic analyst Guzman Ilyev is chair of the Bulgarian Union for Economic Initiative. He is personally skeptical about the EU's green transition, which he believes is holding back Europe's economic development. And he feels even more negatively about radical eco-activism. He's speaking to our colleagues at BNR. Eco-activists, when they use these approaches and tactics, are actually resorting to a form of terrorism. Green ideology is based on the use of such techniques and tricks to achieve its goals. In this case, to really alarm those who think differently. The most apocalyptic predictions have been made. Absolutely insane ones and, as it turns out, ones that have not been proven true over time. 
What these people are really trying to impose here, forcefully or defiantly, is something that is quite bleak in terms of economic growth, in terms of people's standards of living. And just as a side note, as we were preparing this episode, a Bulgarian motorway blockade had been in place for 10 days. A blockade actually not led by green activists, but by coal miners campaigning against the closure of the pits, as per the country's EU recovery plan to support the green transition. So how severely should green radical activists be punished for their crimes, damaging artifacts, causing disruption and so on? In Italy, the Ultima Generazione, or Last Generation Movement, has been condemned for defacing some of the most beautiful monuments in major Italian cities, reports our colleague Giulia from Radio 24 in Milan. A recent bill provides for a prison sentence of between six months and three years for people who damage public or religious buildings or buildings protected as cultural heritage. Yet Giulia also relays the concerns of the UN Special Rapporteur on Environmental Defenders, Michel Forst, about Italy's increasing criminalization of its environmental activists. She seeks the views of lawyer Gilberto Pagani, who is defending some of these activists and spearheading an initiative to support them, on what effect harsh punitive measures will realistically have. Repressive measures are obviously aimed at preventing these incidents, since in the vast majority of cases we are talking about very young people, I cannot dismiss the possibility that some of them, at a certain point, for one reason or another, will give up. If you conduct a search or file a complaint against an 18, 19 or 20-year-old and they come home to find their parents very unhappy, you objectively limit their right to express their ideas. Clearly, repression has precisely that as its end goal. Instead of acknowledging the problem that these kids are raising and trying even just a little to respond to it, in other words, by taking action against climate change, You just target the perpetrators or presumed perpetrators of these actions in order to keep it all under wraps and make sure that nobody else protests. And Pagani goes on to explain why he will appeal to the European Court of Human Rights to denounce the Italian state for violating freedom of expression. The jurisprudence of the European Court is in some ways far more advanced than ours in several fields, but especially in terms of the topics we are discussing regarding the right to protest and opposing the criminalization of non-violent demonstrations. Indeed, European courts have shown leniency towards some instances of civil disobedience in the context of the ecological emergency. Instances that can, they say, be justified by the state of necessity. So then, is freedom of expression something more important than abiding by the law? This is what Croatian biochemist and long-standing climate activist Saramatik argues in an interview with journalist Rajen Zima. Politicians and people in positions of power ignore citizens and activists, and that's why it's reasonable to resort to methods other than just protesting and writing petitions. 
That's what gives rise to the idea of different acts and blockades and methods that shock and attract more attention from the public and those in positions of power who have ignored all the peaceful protests. It should be noted that none of this is radical, though. The activists are always peaceful and non-violent. Take spilling soup on a painting in a museum, for example. We all know that valuable paintings in museums are protected or replaced with replicas, so nothing was damaged. But we can see that this action was very successful, because it spread around the world, and now everyone is talking about it. Many of those interviewed as we prepared this episode insisted that dialogue is always the best solution to bring about change. Of course, dialogue is important, says climate psychologist Gintare Zinkevicciute, who we heard from earlier. But, she adds, as the threat of climate change continues to grow, it is only natural that more radical measures are needed. It seems to me that we have to have some climate activists who are shocking, who are attention-grabbing. But at the same time, it's terribly important to have other climate activists who encourage dialogue, who listen, who interpret what's happening. It seems to me that this problem cannot be solved and brought to the attention of the public only through these radical movements, because yes, they cause discontent. They make the climate movement controversial, so they alone will not solve the problem. But just by listening peacefully, we can see that the climate debate has been running for decades. One of the reasons why people are resorting to radical action is because they see that change is not happening as quickly as the rapid consequences on our world's climate. And we finish up our tour in Hungary, where we meet Itzvan Ferenczi, an environmentalist and climate activist. In an interview with Xila Adam, he clarifies that there has not yet been a radicalization of the environmental movement in Hungary, but that he is personally prepared to take radical steps to protect the environment. Personally, if I cannot get bulldozers to stop coming into the forest through lobbying, going to court, calling for attention and petitioning, then I will certainly climb a tree and the police and security guards will have to pull me down from there to gain access to the area with their bulldozers. So I could certainly radicalize under certain circumstances, but I can only speak for myself. So the jury is out on how far is too far and whether the end justifies the means. And you, what do you think? And that is it for today. If you like Urinal Plus's podcast, please share them and rate them. Stay tuned for another Green Deal podcast in two weeks' time.